The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Today, I'm bringing you this entire show about ideas. Where do your best ones come from? Um, I think my ideas, they always start from a hunch, um, an observation, and then it's kind of anthropological in that I am actually looking to see if I'm wrong, not to see if I'm right. That's Rachel Botsman, and she's a lot of things, a writer, a teacher, host of a very cool podcast called Rethink Moments. But mostly, Rachel is a career thinker. Her gift is that she can absorb the complexity of the present moment and name what's going on. Rachel crystallizes ideas. And I think some people, they think that ideas just kind of show up, like a light bulb goes off. But really, I'm here to tell you that it's just the opposite. If you're looking for paradigm shifts, changes in behavior, changes in technology, changes in the way that people want to consume things, that takes time to understand how it's all stitching together. There's a process to developing the ideas that really matter. Now, I first started paying attention to Rachel when I was a tech reporter. She read this book. It was called What's Mine is Yours, all about how humans are wired to share. And technology enables that. This idea of sharing your house or car with strangers to make money was so new back then. Companies like Airbnb and Uber were just launching. So I asked Rachel when the ideas for this book first began to take form. Here's Rachel. So I think they started to take form around 2007. I had been working at the Clinton Foundation in the very early stages. I'd gone to work in big consultancies, doing brand and innovation work. What I was seeing everywhere was the way that technology was changing it sounds so silly to say now, but the way we were sharing information and the way that we were sharing photos um, and videos and sort of the rise of things like YouTube and social media networks. Time out, though, Rachel, because let's ground people. You say it sounds sort of silly to say, but let's take people back to 2007. I'm just going to guess that a lot of our listeners, by the way, were you know still in college in 2007, or maybe they hadn't even gotten to college. In 2007, your parents were not on Facebook yet. In fact, mostly only university kids and a few particularly savvy young adults were on Facebook, and people mostly still used it to date, check each other out. In 2007, not everybody had the kind of broadband that makes sharing pictures easy and seamless, but a lot more people were starting to, right? It was opening mm -hmm. doors. Our tools weren't as great. In 2007, my guess is that you, listener, did not have a smartphone yet. You wouldn't have had a smartphone. That was writing about the sharing economy. And I started to go, holy moly, the way that we're sharing information and the way we're sharing media, this is just the beginning of people were calling it a transformation in supply and demand, but that didn't fit for me. What I was seeing was how technology was really the cha changing the way that we could trust one another. And there were entrepreneurs I met very early on. So like Scott Heiferman, the founder of Meetup, um, that you know, revolutionary, the idea of 
using the internet to get off the internet to meet up in the real world like this was you know we didn't have dating platforms back then back then um i remember meeting the airbnb founders uh when it was like five of them um and they had such a clear vision of strangers from all around the world were going to share their homes. And so I have this, I still have the notebook where I started to write down these themes, uh, access over ownership, trust between strangers, uh, the concept of idling capacity, which didn't get spoken about actually, but it was, I think actually the core, this idea of value in all kinds of assets, physical assets, skills, people's time, people's energy that you could unlock through technology. And, um, I knew there was something big here. And so I was like, oh, I I think I could write a book on this. And everyone was like, you're never going to get published. No one knew gets published. And what I didn't realize at the time was I wrote that book proposal in like three weeks, all these models in my head. So like product service systems, it was all very, very clear. And then I did get a book deal but I was writing the book to start a movement. So I think that's why it came out quite quickly. Rachel, there are so many reasons why people write books. There are so many things that influence what they want to do. How did you think of your career? Like what it was that you did at that time? I mean, you described a lot of different experiences in your background. What was the point of this thing that you were creating? I never saw myself as a writer. I was always someone that could take very complex ideas and distill them down to a point of clarity. I think there's a difference between clarity and simplicity. You know, I'll say it like it was a superpower that people could be having these very complex conversations and then I could create this sort of synthesis and then the momentum to move people towards that idea. So I knew I could frame things And, you know, in my work, I'm always drawing things. So in the very first book, I drew things before I could write about them. But I wasn't like you, Jesse. I always really struggled with writing and words. So that was the challenge. But I knew that I had to codify this thing, that there was sort of an intellectual marathon in writing the book that would make the idea stronger. Um, And that's that was part of the personal goal. But then also, as I said, like I thought this would be so useful to entrepreneurs all around the world because the idea of the sharing economy, you didn't need the whole point was you didn't need a lot of resources to unlock that value. Right. Well, so the terminology, is the sharing economy yours, that term? No. No. Where's that from? I I actually don't know, to be honest. So um The term I used in the book was collaborative consumption. And the point Mm -hmm. was actually because it's still a form of consumerism. And I have thought about the word sharing, but it's a very loaded term. Well, of course, in the early days of what we, what I'm going to use your term, collaborative consumption, this new form of commerce and community emerging because the internet allowed for it. Um, We all were so naive about it. I mean, I remember meeting Brian Chesky, who I really, really respected then and do now. But I remember thinking him so naive. He was this art student who had created Airbnb along with another art student. Actually, they weren't students. They were recent grads, but still they were young. They ha- they did not have a tech background. 
They did not have a business background. And what they were preaching was this the equivalent of, hey, you can let strangers live in your house and let's trust that all people are good. And fast forward 15 years um, and Airbnb is a massive and I would argue incredibly useful and interesting business. What did you think of that spin at that point? Like, here's your idea. It's kind of being co-opted by these very young folks. There's yeah. no reason yet to suspect their hope is naive unless you've lived for a while in the world. Like, what did you think? It's a really good question. I mean, I was 30, 30 no, probably like 32. They were like in their early 20s. And it's funny because um, I did my first TED talk on this in 2010. And I look at that talk and I think, Oh, it was so naive, right? Because we ne we never spoke about these ideas at scale. That's the thing that I think was really interesting is I don't think Brian, as ambitious as he was, could ever imagine that his idea would call rent it cause rent inflation. I don't think the founders of Skillshare or TaskRabbit could even imagine it would create this new economy called the gig economy that we'd have to reinvent this whole new kind of social license and protect these workers because their goal wasn't that big. Right. So that's the part that intrigues me is, is the human mind in the very early stages of an idea capable of understanding the scale and the consequences? And the other thing I think is really interesting, Jesse, and I've been thinking about this a lot more in my work is that do ideas have a perfect state, a perfect size? And when they get bigger than that, something is lost and diluted. And I think about that in relation to companies and startups, but also careers. Like if your, if your, if your career gets so big and you get so stretched in different directions, do you reach a point of dilution that what may, that, that what created value or led you to that expertise or what you, how you got to that insight, it's like you've got to find that smallness within the bigness again. Now this thought that maybe there's a point where your job becomes too big, so big that you lose focus on what you love about that job, well, it's something I hear a lot about from listeners right now. In the great reshuffle, some people are looking for roles that aren't bigger but deeper and therefore more satisfying. Yeah, I think it's there's a there's a distinction in people. So there's some people and you see them as they sort of grow throughout their career and they like to be people talk talk about it being stretched, but it's actually like they like things to get broader and broader and broader and their portfolio to get wider and wider. And then there's other people that they thrive in the depth and they thrive in the intimacy and the smallness of things. But I think there is something that people have a very different relationship to scale. And if we understood that, we'd understand why some people really thrive in large organizations and they thrive as their jobs get bigger and their responsibility gets bigger. And there's other people like me where as the opportunities get bigger, all I'm constantly saying is, oh, no, no, like, can we keep it small? Can we keep it intimate? Because that's where I make the best work. And we'll be right back. When we return, Rachel tells us how she knows she's got a big idea. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with Rachel Botsman. You know, there are so many bits and scraps of ideas, things that we think of only to discover someone else thought of them first, things that are novel but don't really feel big. So I asked Rachel how she knows when she's landed on an idea that's both big and original. I know and I don't know. So maybe I'll start with the don't know because that might take me to how I know. So I have just picked up two ideas for the last couple of years. So I picked up the idea of belief systems and I put it down and I've picked up the idea of humility and trying to understand this new quality of humility and leadership. And I put it down. I've put it down because it doesn't feel like the idea I should bring into the world, that there are other people that can bring this idea into the world with a different and a better voice and a and a more unique perspective than me. So this sounds so pretentious to say, but I think you know it's your idea when it really feels like this very deep marriage between you and the idea, that you you want to take care of it. You want to defend it as much as you want to fight and advocate for it. So you care when people don't understand it. You care about the misconceptions. You really care about the language. That's a, that's a huge sign for me. So as soon as I start to develop uh, terminology that is unique and it's not regurgitating other people and I start to hear other people using that terminology, that's the most, that's the loudest signal when I'm like, oh, I'm giving people a way to speak about something that is really important in the world, that is slightly abstract, that lacks a vocabulary in the workplace or in society. And people are starting to use these terms and these concepts, even if they are still sort of what I call in the greenhouse and they're not fully formed. That's that's the signal. Rachel, you know, you said that this these tend to be five-year cycles. Do you ever become afraid that the next idea won't present itself? Like, <laughs> My God, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, like totally. I mean, not in a paralyzing way. I think I really am very comfortable in the unknown. Like I love that stage where it's all really messy and it's not quite clear and I think I worry when I'm regurgitating. I think I worry when I'm like, my fear is I'm ripping other people off, right? That's my biggest fear, that it's not my idea. Maybe it's because it's a pet peeve I see when I'm like, that's not your idea. I know whose idea that is, like properly represent that idea. So I think that's the fear. Um, And I think I've got better at over time is... I don't know how long the cycle is going to be. So I think that's that's where I give myself a bit more leeway is don't set such a time frame around this because the next idea will emerge. And often, and I'm seeing this now, I had to pick up beliefs and I had to pick up humility to actually discover where I'm going next. And I'm just starting to figure that out. 
you know, Rachel, I also make my career to some degree in ideas, but there's also something to hitting this midpoint in life. And I feel like you and I are are sort of similarly positioned that way that that provides, and I'm actually going to use the word, it's not humility, but I, I think two things are going on. One is that I've I've learned that for me, ideas are sort of like muscles and that if you're a great basketball player and you're on the court regularly, you will become a better basketball player over time. But then the other piece is that you talk about not wanting to rip anybody's ideas off. I think that's really critical, but it also feels to me that ideas also have their moments. They sort of bubble up around us and it's about recognizing the moment and acting on the moment and naming it. Um, let's take Facebook, a company you and I both know very well. When Mark Zuckerberg you know, launched Facebook, there were, I think, 26 other Facebook competitors, many of which I wrote about as a very young reporter at Business Week, and it wasn't clear that any of them would be the breakthrough, right? Um, so maybe this idea of ownership is overblown. Maybe ideas belong to all of us, and you just get to be the one to name it best for us. I agree, and I think the way I described it was quite clunky because, you know, it's funny. I I haven't received a lot of hate mail in my life, but I have received some, and the hate mail is often accusations that I stole people's ideas, that they they were going to come out with this book on the sharing economy, or they invented this term, or they're the expert on this, and you know, I used to really take that personally, but now I'm a big believer that, you know, ideas are reacting to the environment in which they're born. And part of what you're doing is knowing when to drop that idea into the world, knowing how the environment will respond to that. And as I said, like, are you the right person to take that idea to the world? I think the other thing though, where I don't think I've ever thought as much about my own processes and the work that I'm producing than in the last three years. And people can say, oh, that's tied to the pandemic, but I do think it's a stage of life. But I think the thing that's really shifted for me is being tied less to formats. And so, you know, oh, you have to write a book. I'm actually doing an art exhibition later this year, right? Because I want to explore something completely different and I want to work in models and three-dimensionally and I want to like work that muscle in my brain. So if the writing in long form is not working, it doesn't mean I have to give up on the idea. It's I have to find another format for its expression. So I think that's really interesting. And, and it's where I see a lot of people reach out for advice where they get stuck because they've become so fixated on the format. But if you care about the idea and how that comes to fruition, it will find its right space. It will find a channel. It will find a community. So that's that's been a huge learning for me. Rachel hosts a podcast. It's called Rethink Moments with Rachel Botsman. She asks her guests to rethink a big moment they've been a part of or a big idea that they have launched. In one recent episode, she talked to Aza Raskin. He's the guy behind the infinite scroll. You know what that is, right? It's the design of your social feed, the reason why you can scroll for what feels like forever without reaching the end of it. Anyhow, I asked Rachel what it was like to talk to people after their big moments. So it takes a lot of trust from the guests to actually go back to this place. And I, I didn't anticipate that. I thought they'd want to go back there and to unpack these moments, but they've often moved on. Yeah. And they surprise themselves, and you hear this in the episodes, of what they learn from going back there, from traveling back in time. And it's wonderful, like the way they can transport you into the moment, what they were hearing, what they were feeling, and then transport you forwards from what they learned from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it doesn't surprise me at all that there are many people who don't want to revisit those moments. I think, I'm positing one reason that people don't always love reflecting on significant moments that have passed is because always in the moment that we're in in culture, we look back at where we have been and condemn our earlier versions of ourselves for what we didn't know about how the world really works. And so knowing that we will eventually do that about this moment that we are in, how how can we think about essentially the unintended consequences of the ideas that we're hatching up right now, the ways that our future selves will look back at what we're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting question. First of all, I think the fear comes from judgment. So that with hindsight, you judge things in a really different way. But I think we have more of a responsibility to think forwards as much as we can in human capacity to think about the idea, that piece of work, whatever it may be that we're bringing into the world and the impact that it may have. Yeah. So surprising episode, actually, it's with Jason Freed, who as the founder of Basecamp, I think this is a really good example. And it's all about the memo he wrote uh, that completely exploded. Essentially, what was going on at Basecamp, it, it's a very forward-thinking company. So Jason basically coined the term remote work 15 years ago. Um, they've never had physical offices. Um, he cares so passionately about culture and well-being. And, you know, the way he put it was that work just wasn't fun anymore. And one of the reasons why work wasn't enjoyable anymore was that people were having political conversations. They were having divisive conversations about societal issues. Um, and it, he saw that it was creating a lot of stress. And his belief was that actually work should be a space where you can come and work. And that this idea of bringing everything to work and sharing everything had gone too far. And it was flooding people and their team dynamics. And so he wrote this memo. I didn't realize actually the thought that went into this memo because when it came out, it looked like he just pressed send. And it was, I think, five or six principles saying things that had to change at base camp. And one of them was um, no more political discussions in any workplace channels. Political discussions are now banned. That was the one I think that caused the most controversy. Um, the other one I thought was quite interesting was, I can't remember his exact phrasing, but it was something about like no more well-being benefits um, because he felt like people had the right to choose what well-being meant to them. And the thing that was so interesting about this memo is that his intentions got completely misunderstood mm -hmm. and it blew up all over the internet and there were all these accusations 50% of his workforce walked out as a result of that memo, 50%. And he received threats on his family, on his life, from a memo that he wrote. Now, he didn't realize that he was going to release this memo at a time where dynamics between employees and employers were changing so fast the power dynamics during the pandemic. He didn't realize that he was releasing this memo in a time of council culture that he couldn't even get his head around at the time. Yeah, He thought he was sending a message to his employees. And what he has learned from that moment, 
a year later, how it's transformed him as a leader, how it's changed the culture of that company. He doesn't regret sending the memo. And so I think sometimes, and this is one of my deep fears, is that we're living in a society now where we're going to become so paralyzed by worrying about the consequence of what we say or the consequence of what we bring in the world, that everything will become too filtered and sensitized. And I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but like that is my fear is that I think we have a responsibility to look forward, but also to have the courage that sometimes these ideas and these things that we bring into the world, they will have a consequence that we won't be able to understand until there is a period of time that has has lapsed. I think you are answering my question. I think that what I'm hearing you say, and you tell me if this is wrong, is that you don't expect that people should pay more attention than they are paying right now. That in fact, if we ask people to, we risk crippling our ability to come up with big new ideas in the first place. Totally. Well, listen, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us for an episode that was so fun. It's been years in the making. Thanks, Jesse. That was Rachel Bodsman. Her podcast, Rethink Moments, is part of the new LinkedIn Podcast Network. You can find it wherever you listen to shows. This week on Office Hours, let's talk about big ideas. Join us on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And as always, if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Taisha Henry. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor help us think through moments of our own. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And Sarah Storm remains our fairy godmother. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.